0: The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team.
1: Well, the major index is logged in with gains to finish out the week, with a strong surge in stock prices on Friday. This reverses three consecutive weeks of losses. Earnings have been coming in better than expected. And there are signs inflation is starting to moderate. Oil prices pulled back a bit after Biden released another 15 million barrels of oil from the SPR, taking it down to the levels last seen in 1984. We're also getting dangerously low after it looks like OPEC spare capacity is limited and diminishing, falling short of target production by almost 3.6 million barrels a day. In other news, it's widely expected the Fed will raise the Fed funds rate by three-quarters of a point next month. That will make it the fifth consecutive three-quarter hike this year. There is talk they will debate whether to slow the pace of increases as rate hikes and a rising dollar, which is up 15% this year, is wreaking havoc in the emerging and developed markets around the globe. Central banks have been selling off massive amounts of treasuries to get dollars to buy energy. This is driving up treasury bond yields as some are suggesting the Fed may have lost control over the treasury markets at a time... The government debt is exploding. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplava, and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck is Mish Schneider. Mish sees a short-term technical bounce with longer-term headwinds ahead. Mish likes small-cap stocks, commodities, and gold. And later on, I'll be joined by Octavio Morenci as we discuss the mess Europe finds itself on energy and why he believes energy prices are heading higher. Finally, Chris Sheridan and I will join for the big picture. Our topic is warning, crash landing ahead. But before we do that, let's talk to Ryan Poplava and see what moved the markets this week.
2: Ryan. This week was all about rallies, rates, and earnings. The week kicked off with a few things that set the tone for the rally in just about everything, minus bond prices. But more on that later. The new UK finance minister Hunt scrapped most of the tax measures from the prior mini-budget, which led to a rally on bond prices initially and also in the British pound, up 1.5%. Since the volatility in the UK guilt and the pound had led to some financial instability concerns earlier in the month, the about-face by the UK did much to soothe concerns. Additionally on Monday, Morgan Stanley chief strategist Michael Wilson has been calling the bear market said the S&P 500 could have a technical rally up to 4150 if earnings don't roll over and a recession can be avoided. The S&P 500 opened higher on the day relative to last week's terrible ending and pushed those gains through the day to close up 2.65%. It was also helped On Tuesday, just as the Bank of America Fund Manager survey showed the largest cash holdings since April 2001 at 6.3% to encourage the rally in risk assets. The issue with the rally throughout the week was the slow creep of interest rates higher that served to keep a lid on the bulls. Monday, the 10-year treasury yield settled at 4%, while the two-year hit 4.4%. On Tuesday, the 10-year hit 4.13% after Minneapolis Fed President Kashkari, a voter next year, said the Fed funds rate could go above four and three quarters if no improvement in core inflation occurs. The two-year rose to four and a half percent just thereafter. There was a continuance of selling in treasuries Thursday after Philadelphia Fed President Harker said he expects rates to be well above four percent by the end of the year, given the lack of progress fighting inflation. The 10-year closed Thursday at 4.22 percent, and the two-year hit a fresh high of 4.6%. Liz Truss announced her resignation as the UK Prime Minister, but it didn't seem to affect the market that much since Hunt had scrapped most of her plan on Monday. As rates had been creeping higher, most of the midweek rallies were faded. Things turned around for bonds and rates that fell back on Friday after the Wall Street Journal published an article by Nick DeMiroz who many believe is the mouthpiece for the Fed to trial balloon its thinking to check market temperament. He wrote that the Fed will raise rates 75 basis points in November, but then possibly can consider a smaller increase at the December meeting. I was largely confused by the favorable market reaction in Stocks Friday because this seemed largely in line with the dot plot figures we got in September with the median rate for 2022 at 4.4%. However, if you look at the CME FedWatch tool, which is pricing in Fed futures and betting on what we could possibly see, and is usually fairly accurate, investors had begun to price in a higher probability of another 75 basis point hike in December. After the Wall Street Journal article post, the probability dropped down to 50% from 75% a day prior. In addition to the Wall Street Journal article, San Francisco Fed President Daily not a voter, said stepping down the pace of rate increases will help preserve market structure. And St. Louis Fed President Bullard, a voter, said he hopes to get a deflationary process going in 2023. As a result, buyers finally stepped in to buy treasuries on Friday. The 10-year settled down to 4.21% and the two-year settled at 4.51%. Overnight, the 10-year had hit 433 Again, from 433 down to 4.21 on Friday. Earnings continue to be announced as better than expected, helping to corroborate comments earlier in the week from Michael Wilson about earnings supporting a technical rally here. According to FactSet, of the 20% of the S&P 500 companies that have posted earnings, 72% have beat estimates, which is below the 5- and 10-year averages. The surprise itself is also below the 5- and 10-year averages at 2.3% above estimates. John Butters of Faxit said that of the companies that have reported so far, the financial sector has been the largest contributor to the decrease in overall earnings growth rate. This week, there weren't any key earnings reports that really moved the market, but Netflix had a nice response from investors with gains of 13% after announcing. The company returned to positive net ads after three straight quarterly declines and had more than doubled the guidance helped by a strong quarter of content. Their new ad-supported tier kicks off November 3rd in the U.S., and in 11 other markets this quarter. And finally, their approach to earn off of members who are sharing their accounts seem to be hitting a chord with investors. Lamb Research was another success story this week, up 7.8% after earnings. There have been some recent setbacks for the industry in general with the U.S. Commerce Department's new export restrictions on semi-equipment to Chinese companies, in addition to Micron's decision recently to slash CapEx by 30% for the fiscal year of 23, The company gave upbeat commentary regarding long-term fundamentals, such as expansion of semi-content in end devices, device complexity demanding better chips, and larger die sizes, echoing comments from ASML early in the week that the industry is healthy. The company gave a solid increase in guidance as well for the next quarter, far surpassing analyst expectations. Other mentionable names this week with positive investor responses to earnings were Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, AT&T, Verizon, United Airlines, Lockheed Martin, ASML, and IBM. Tesla was down 6.7% post its earnings on a miss, but the company did state they see strong demand in the fourth quarter. Snap fell 28% on Friday, stating they see a difficult advertising environment with rising competition from TikTok and Apple's iOS privacy changes assisting with the difficulty. It will be interesting to see how the outlook is affecting Alphabet, which is posting on October 25th, Meta, formerly Facebook, on October 26th, and Pinterest on October 27th. Next week will be a big week for earnings with a large group of Dow and S&P 500. bellwethers, reporting the technical rally seems to have begun, but let's see if our guest technician, Ms. Schneider, has the same sentiment coming up next.
3: The Fed has only one model. That's it. Raise interest rates to bring down inflation because it's based on speculation. And that's just not true. Sometimes we're dealing with the opposite, which right now
1: it's shortages. And that was set in motion by COVID. People couldn't drive around. They couldn't deliver things. I mean, I got emails from farmers that had to kill 30,000 chickens because they couldn't get on the market. Another farmer sent me photographs that he was
3: plowing his entire uh, potato crop under, underground, couldn't get it to market. So you created shortages. I go to the supermarket. One day, there's no eggs. Two days later, they're back. All right. I never saw that in my entire life. All right, so raising interest rates in this type of an environment of shortages only exacerbates the shortages. We're not dealing with a speculative boom.
4: To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're
0: seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help from setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management.
4: The stock market is currently seeing a technical rally from deeply oversold levels. However, we also see leading economic indicators rolling over, signaling high odds of a recession. Joining us today to discuss the technical and fundamental backdrop is Mish Schneider, Director of Trading, Education, and Research at MarketGage.com. Mish, let's start off with the technical picture of the market. On a shorter-term basis, we saw a lot of buy signals getting triggered the last couple of weeks, as the S&P 500 traded into the 3600 level, we did see a pretty quick spike down to 3500 last Thursday. That was a new low for this year, and that took us about 27% off the all-time highs peaked to trough. But at this point, it appears we're looking at a technical rally within the context of a larger downtrend or bear market. What say you?
3: Well, 3,600 is exactly of the pivotal level. It was a target of ours months ago. The fact that it was violated briefly and came back through could be very relevant to where we're going to go in a seasonal positive time. Midterm elections, I think the stat has been 11 out of 14 midterm uh, elections, and I'm not sure if that's the exact stat, but it has been a high percentage of we see a seasonal rally into the midterm elections and then beyond to the end of the year and of course you know obviously going into the uh, holiday season as well has generally been a more positive time so 3600 right now the fact that, that has held the real question is going to be what happens at 3800 if we can get through 3800 then we might be looking at 4,000 to 4,200. But again, that's really where you have to question somewhat about what the policies going forward are going to be in terms of the yields, the dollar, uh, government grants and spending, uh, consumer confidence, et cetera. So we don't really know, and they've sort of been going hand in hand, but what we do know is this, charts don't lie, price doesn't lie. And right now with all the doom and gloom you're hearing in the media, you still not only held that critical level in the the spiders, but you also in the Russell 2000, which we like to look at as probably the most important, especially right now, since it's US dominated 2000 small cap stocks in the US, they did not make a June low. If you're looking at IWM, the way SPY and NASDAQ and the diamonds did, They actually held the June low, and even though they're trading under a very critical resistance point of the 200-week, all the most salient U.S.-centric sectors besides the Russell 2000, if we're looking at retail through XRT and transportation through IYT, held the bottom of a six- to seven-year business cycle as measured by the 80-month moving average, almost to the tick. So right now, all we can say is yes, we've had contraction, yes, the yields have done damage, but at the same token, we certainly cannot with any confidence until those levels are broken say, we're going down another 20% or we're going into a deep recession. Never listen to a macroeconomic person for your investment advice is <laughs> really the bottom line. Learn how to look at these cycles in these charts.
4: So what you're saying here is if you look at the Russell 2000 and perhaps more U.S.-centric indices and names, less weakness here in the U.S., even if we are still in, in the midst of a, of a downtrend.
3: Yes, and until and further notice, because as you know, things can change. But for right now, I definitely see the small caps uh, and even some of the transportation sectors. J.B. Hunt reported they did pretty well. Uh, As still relatively, when I say relatively, strong compared to things that are more interest rate and dollar rally sensitive. And of course, that would be tech uh, and and a lot of the, 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 the large cap stocks, the mega stocks. So, yeah, and we still have a lot of earnings to get through as well. But what was interesting is that the airlines reported very well and everybody keeps thinking that people don't want to spend money anymore, but actually... It's how they're spending money that seems to be changing right now, not that they're not spending money.
4: Mish, let's go back for a second to what you mentioned when it comes to stock market performance around midterm elections. I'll have some research that I'm going to post in our show notes section. But if you look back at the past 60 years, which would include the high inflation of the 1970s, of course, the stock market tends to bottom in October, which it appears we've now seen again at that 3500 level On the S&P 500 in recent weeks and then typically rallies around 30% over the next 12 months. Again, this is in the context of midterm elections. However, one of the big caveats to such a positive outlook in this case from a seasonal or historical perspective, of course, is that you'd have to go all the way back to 1929 to see a recession take place in the third year of a presidential cycle. That would be next year in our case, for 2023, would be President Biden's third year. And as we've been discussing on our show, the leading economic indicators are now turning pretty strongly down and flagging very high odds for a recession, if not imminently, according to the conference board, into year-end, at least over the next 12 months. So putting all these things together, it appears that we could be looking at a sizable rally off the October lows into year-end, but as we enter 2023... It's hard to get too bullish on the longer term outlook with the LEIs pointing to a hard landing in the economy. And one thing that I will say that I think could help from at least a midterm election perspective, when you look at the massive shortages that we see in the oil and gas complex and how that's contributing to inflationary concerns, if the Republicans were to take Congress or at least the House, that may open the door to more domestic production and much needed investment into the fossil fuel sector to help alleviate these bottlenecks. So if we were to see that I could see how that would provide more of a tailwind for thinking that that will lower the price of oil moving forward. What are your thoughts on this?
3: Okay, so there was a lot of questions in there and a lot of commentary as well. So I'm going to try to sift through all of that. Well, number 1 is in terms of if we go more red than blue, we're looking at it as colors. So the red agenda is more about oil, gas, drill, open the pipelines, keep the oil flowing. We can be, in, we can be independent here in the United States and therefore not influenced by OPEC plus or Russia, Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the dem- democratic agenda is more about alternative energy, climate change and going more green. And of course, that's the political parties in a nutshell. So it's possible with people worried about oil and gas prices and will they actually go lower and the perception that somehow the Republicans will have some kind of answer to help businesses in general and we're going to get to the second part of your question in a moment, it's very possible that we will see more uh, of a swing to the Republican side. Of course, we know what that does then. you know We have a complete um, stalemate in terms of everything in the next couple of years while we still have a Democratic president. So then it'll be what happens in 2024, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, I, I try not to think too much about the political stuff. I mean, one of my favorite things to say is that for the 14 years I was a commodities trader in New York on the exchange. I worked with the same guys pretty much every day of my life, literally shoulder to shoulder. And I didn't know whether they voted Democrat or Republican. And we didn't, whether they talked about it after work, I have no idea, but within the hours of the trading we were only concerned about how do we make money. So that's always what I try to come from. So if the Republicans win, it would be interesting to see what happens with energy. Obviously, everybody thought that Biden was going to kill the oil and gas industry. And of course, then COVID happened and demand and so short supply and the opposite happened. Oil and gas has gone crazy and is still the most outperforming sector in the entire market. So the second part of your question is, can anybody control what's coming? which is probably higher inflation just looking different than what we have looked at over the last couple of years. Uh, It was pretty obvious that producers of raw materials were really doing low production because prices were so cheap. That's what commodities is all about, right? It's it's all about uh, hedging against whatever your physical commodity is. So, When prices of wheat and corn and soybeans and sugar and coffee are dropping or metals are dropping, then those companies are the ones that go into the futures market and hedge against that. But still, what they were caught was a pandemic that stopped supply chain, had already a low production, labor, which basically quit because they couldn't go out and work. And that's what, and why you saw everything go ballistic, right? So now let's talk about what's going to happen from 20, end of 2022 on. And that really is going to be more about the new face of inflation. And that's where I wonder what can happen here, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, to prevent this storm that we see coming. So, you know, we can talk more about that, but I didn't know if you wanted to say something right here before I continue
4: Yeah. And one thing to note here as well is that when it does come to the insanely high gas prices and shortages that we see in the oil and gas complex, you know, Biden has already drained most of our reserves to try and bring those prices down. But that's a short term fix. And that can only keep prices down for so long. But I mean, we're looking at years, if not decades of underinvestment into our energy infrastructure. And that's what the American Society of Civil Engineers have been pointing out year after year with their report cards that they conduct. So even if we do see those much needed investments return back to refineries and baseload power sources, oil, gas, and nuclear, this is not something that is going to be fixed overnight.
3: I, I totally agree with that because essentially everything takes time, which is why we've been talking about... That inflation, and I'm talking about months ago when people thought it peaked, you can't just say, okay, wave a magic wand and there's more raw materials. There's more corn, there's more wheat, there's more soybeans, there's more metal mining, you know, whatever it is. It doesn't work like that because these are things that aren't (laughs) man-made. These are things that grow from the earth. And there's a lot of factors that go into that. And probably the biggest factor that goes into that is whether you are on the side of climate change denier or climate change advocate, Mother Nature has her own thing that she talks about, right? And and, and Mother Nature has been a huge factor, has not been our friend lately. Uh, One of the things that I thought was startling that I read this week is the Mississippi River is down almost 11 feet in water level, as long as that level has been recorded in time, that's the lowest. I find that a little bit concerning. Uh, It it hasn't gotten much press. It was just like one of these little stories I saw. But you have to wonder, it doesn't matter who's in charge. What are you going to do about that? And so, of course, you'll get you arguing on, you know, the climate change, and you can't do anything more because we're just going to kill the planet. And then you're going to get your argument. Well, you know, this is even more reason why the U.S. has to make sure that they get all their resources they can to stay more independent. And who wins in that is still, like you said, going to take years before it actually sees some kind of real structural change. But I do believe that there is a mega trend. Not just here, I heard Macron say this today too, about deglobalization in essence and re industrialization in your own country, which goes back to the key word in your last comment, which was infrastructure. Whether it's infrastructure through oil and gas or just infrastructure in general, bridges, tunnels, airline control towers, et cetera, we are still relatively in the dark ages here compared to, say, Asian countries. Uh, as far as our own infrastructure, highways, et cetera. And then not to mention the infrastructure even to be able to handle a trend that I don't think anybody could stop, which is obviously the, the, the move towards electric vehicles. Um, and so obviously bi- battery charging stations, m- the minerals that we need to power those EVs, you know, all this stuff. So yeah, I think whatever tailwind we might get That's going to be really interesting to see whether it can sustain as the reality sets back in. And we still have to go through 2023 and 2024 anyway. Uh, Like I said, probably with very little getting done politically, if um, the Republicans gain power again, and even if the Democrats continue to stay in power, you know, we'll see what happens there, too. So to me, I think the most important thing that we have to watch right now is the credibility factor of governments in general, of central banks, We could see what just happened in England. Talk about losing credibility there, right? Trust was like the shortest term politician, I think, maybe ever. Um, The Bank of England tried to buy back the bonds. Does that really help the economy? Now Japan has taken the same route. Um, And now the question is, at what point With all the trillions that the Fed has removed in liquidity by raising the rates so fast, that rate of change being like insane, you know, what kind of destruction have they done and at what point do they say, whoa, you know, we're now enemy number one. All of these reasons are reasons that I don't think you can stop the inflation train because people are getting restless, food is still short, prices are still high, interest rates have now climbed, where you can't afford to borrow money or buy a house if you're a first-time home buyer, especially. Um, and then you had the dollar, which was the kingpin. And you know, today, as we are talking, it went from a high of about one thirteen eighty or ninety, maybe it's down trading at one twelve. That means it just totally pivoted and crashed. If this dollar crashes in the face of these higher yields, which are still up today, even though they've come down a little bit from its peak, I think that's a very, very big fair warning sign that there's a great unraveling happening. And even America, which is in better shape than everybody else, will be questioned as being able to sustain all the spending that we're doing with the high interest rates, the liquidity that's been taken out of the market. And I'm not sure who the heck can save that. It'll just have to play itself out. It could get ugly.
4: Yeah, that's structurally embedded when you just think about uh, the systemic factors that are favoring higher spending, larger deficits. So that is going to be number one topic of the new cycle. Again, uh, we aren't looking at that yet, but perhaps that's what we're going to be looking at uh, moving into next year. So again, you know, we're looking at a at least right now, a shorter-term technical rally. We do see an established downtrend of lower highs, lower lows. Ever since we saw the peak uh, late last year, early this year, Um, we got to 27% down off those highs, peak to trough on the S&P 500. As you said, if you look at the US-centric names or the Russell 2000, they're holding up a little bit better. Problems abroad are still favoring the US. So that may continue. We may see outperformance US compared to international for the time being but longer term you know the fundamentals particularly leading leading economic indicators if we look at the conference board their data came out this week they're now saying that high odds of a recession before the end of this year so we're looking at uh, some pretty significant deterioration in a number of leading economic indicators so the fundamental backdrop the macro backdrop i would say is not favoring you know a a long term bottom or a big turn in the markets uh and so this is most likely a shorter-term technical rally.
3: That's really basically what, yes, what I've been trying to say. And and something, by the way, Jim and I have been very much like-minded on for a long time now, which is to keep an eye on the precious metals, because you want to talk about a sector that has obviously underperformed some of the other uh, commodities, uh, but has still outperformed the S&P 500, um, its gold and silver, and what's so interesting about them right now is that, particularly silver, it made its low, I think it was in June, it made a low at like 1619, if we look at SLV. And it then rallied with the market when we had that big bounce. But then, as the market came off in the last few weeks, silver has actually stayed relatively firm. And gold is really trying to stay above, say, I think it's like 1640 an ounce. So if this dollar continues on its path, like it cannot find footing, like today, it just broke 112, as we're talking, it's collapsing. But yet the yields are still really high. People say, oh, historical relationships. They, they're, they're, they're saying about this whole recession thing based on this inverted yield curve and historical relationships. I say we're in a new, we're in a new paradigm right here. And the paradigm is exactly what the word, another word you use, that was great, which is systemic. This is now a systemic issue that we're having, and we're now we're starting to see unfold. And sometimes the perception is more powerful than the reality. You know, it's the old buy the rumors, sell the news thing that you say in the markets. But right now, I would say that exactly that is that the commodities and the equities can go up together to a point. But then the equities will look around and say, what the heck is going on? Why is all these commodities still rallying? Why is the dollar collapsing? And yet the Fed has done everything they can to raise the rates. And if they go any further, they're they're going to put us into a deep deep recession, so they're going to stop for now, in which case inflation goes out of control, and then you see the equities make a new leg lower. I've been predicting that for a while. I, I hate having negative predictions, but then again, we're investors, so we want to make sure we're prepared. So we're long in the metals, we're long in the softs, we long a couple of defensive stocks. When I say defense, government contracts, when the government's putting money towards something particularly if it's more politically neutral, like a Palantir or a Lockheed Martin type of situation. Generally, that means that um, you wouldn't necessarily have to be as worried as risk if the whole market falls apart because nothing's ever safe if the whole market falls apart. But I think we're going to see this great separation in this super cycle of commodities. It's kind of like the 1970s on steroids because Mm. times are even more difficult now than they were then.
4: All right. 1970s on steroids. I think we'll use that as a, as a headline for today's show interview. Well, Mesh, it was a pleasure speaking with you on our show. As usual, again, I want to point out you're the Director of Trading Education Research at MarketGage.com. As we close, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about how they can follow more of your work and any other projects that you're involved with?
3: Yes, thank you. Uh, Well, marketgage.com is our website. We do produce a daily blog with very actionable information, um, which you can find. I also make a lot of media appearances, so I've been frequent... Flyer on Bloomberg, CNBC, Fox, Yahoo Finance, TD Ameritrade, et cetera. And so if you subscribe to our YouTube channel at Market Gauge, then you can see some of those spots where we talk about a lot of things that you and I just discussed. But I also want people to know that we have we teach people to trade. Obviously, we advise our clients where to put money. And we also have a partnership with a TAMP company which is fintech on robo trading. So we see in terms of the face of investment going more automated like that with our quant models we have and and, and the TAMP company. Um, And so that would be something if you wanted to learn more about, you can always contact me on Twitter. It's probably the easiest thing to do. And that's at Market Minute.
4: Okay. And I'll have links to all of that where this interview is located on Financial Sense. So you can go to marketgage.com or follow Mish on Twitter, which I would highly recommend. Mish, it was a pleasure to speak with you on our show again. We look forward to speaking with you in the future.
1: We have increasingly seen a number of indicators point in the direction of recession
3: since we last talked. We've seen, for example, the global manufacturing PMI go below 50 for the first time. We've seen bank lending standards tighten through what I consider to be the warning
1: level That has a pretty good track record of being a recession risk warning sign. Delinquencies are starting to rise across the spectrum in terms of types of debt, so mortgages, credit cards, auto loans, HELOCs. And of course, underlying all of this is the fact that the Fed remains in a very hawkish stance in terms of policy. And as the expression goes,
3: expansions don't die of old age, they're killed by the Fed. Clearly, we've got that dynamic in play today.
4: To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button.
5: At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-888. Four eight six three nine three nine, or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities Inc., member FINRA/SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management.
1: Well, energy is probably the number one topic globally. We're seeing rising energy prices both here in the U.S. and around the globe. What does this mean? But more importantly, is what is happening in Europe could be coming to the U.S. Joining me on the program is Octavio Morenci. He's CEO and founder of Opimus. And Octavio, I want to talk about Europe because as we are seeing higher gasoline prices here in the U.S., It's worse over there because they have to pay for their oil and dollars, and the dollar's up, I guess, what, about 20% against the euro, not to mention what it's up against the yen. So let's begin there. What are you
6: seeing since you are in Europe? Well, certainly energy prices are going through the roof, so there's no question about that. Bear in mind that gasoline price is already much higher in Europe because there's a much, much higher tax burden on top of it than you face in the US. So you compound the taxes, higher crude oil prices, higher petrol prices, it all comes into a very, very painful experience altogether in terms of Gas, natural gas too. Of course, prices there are going through the roof with all the unpleasantness in Ukraine. uh, That has basically driven prices there sky high, more than doubled or almost doubled, I think, over the course of a year. And so we're sort of running out of options a bit in terms of how to get the necessary energy over the course of this winter, which is forecast to become a very cold winter, despite the fact that we're supposed to have all this global warming. But they're saying that this is going to be a particularly cold one. I don't know how they know that, but the powers that be have decided that. We're going to have to huddle up quite badly this coming winter
1: So I know like we're paying I think a little over eight dollars for natural gas here but it's my understanding it's close to forty
6: dollars in europe that's correct I don't know what the price is exactly in Europe versus the us but it is substantially high now I mean you know you'd think that with those kind of price differentials you just start to ship the stuff around and the prices would equalize themselves out and they do of course but it turns out that natural gas is a particularly tricky thing to ship across the Atlantic or across the Pacific. So you have to basically freeze it, liquefy it. You need a very special kind of ship for that. There's not that many ships out that that can do that. So they're in tight, and tight supply and short demand. And so you basically face the situation when prices don't equal out between different regions of geography. So they would for oil or for peanuts or almost anything else. So it's a bit of an unusual commodity in that sense that you can get these enormous price differentials from one region to another. The other thing that we're
1: starting to see, whether it's uh, riots in Iran or riots with refinery workers in France, we're starting to see sort of a backlash to a lot of these policies that have been implemented, this sort of green ESG policies. We've seen it backfire in, in Germany and elsewhere, but they don't seem to want to go back and be more sensible in terms of their
6: energy mix. That surprises me. Well, I think we've seen a backlash. It depends what you mean by more sensible, of course. But the backlash that we've seen in Europe actually went back a couple of years already. And people have forgotten this already. You mentioned France. I mean, in France, of course, they beat everyone in the world in terms of having revolutions and riots and things of that sort. The absolute world champions of that. I was living in Paris for a long time. In the last couple of years, we had these yellow vests or the gilets jaunes who were basically terrorizing the streets of Paris every weekend and just burning up cars and smashing windows and destroying banks and breaking anything they could get their hands on. And that won for a very, very long time. And that was because the government had increased prices on gasoline and said, we need an additional green tax on gas to discourage you from using it. And these people said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Now, they tried to dilute it, saying there's all sorts of other demands and they want better pension benefits and work fewer working hours and this, that, and the other. But when it really came down to it, it was a revolt against the government's green policies in terms of increasing taxation on gas, and they revolted on that. And I think people will revolt in other areas too. They simply can't afford to pay these prices for energy. And it's going to lead to all sorts of outbursts, I think, in the coming month. We're already seeing them. But in the coming months and half year, I think we're going to see a lot of this in Europe, where people are going to take to the streets and demand some sort of change in terms of how things are priced.
1: You know, I just read a story, and I know Germany is having some difficulties in manufacturing. I drive a German car, and my wife does. And Octavia, it took me 10 months to get my car, and it's been eight months. My wife hasn't gotten hers. So it's obviously impacting their manufacturing capabilities, but yet we just heard it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I read a story that they're thinking of reactivating their nuclear power plants for one year after getting permission from Greta Thunberg, you 16, 17-year-old. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. Is she still
6: only 16, 17? It seems that she should be so much older now. So, maybe she's 20. I have no idea. She's been around for so long, it seems she must be older than 16. Well, maybe maybe you're right. I assume, Jim, that you didn't want to then buy the Mercedes that was manufactured in Alabama or in Mexico. You decided to not buy those models? No, I decided I'd get the European version. Yeah, I think it's probably a wise move. No, so yes, the Germans are basically having to demothball some of their nuclear power plants that they had basically planned on decommissioning and saying we are now going to have to fire those back up and go in that direction. In on, on sort of the green side, the environmental side of the house, people are sort of divided over whether atomic energy is desirable or not. But I think they largely see the biggest threat being global warming and greenhouse gases. And nuclear energy doesn't produce any greenhouse gases. It produces all sorts of other nasty stuff that you have to deal with, but no greenhouse gases. So in terms of climate change, I think they look at atomic energy and say this is a good kind of energy source. And other energy sources like natural gas and oil, of course, are very bad because they create uh, CO2 and pump that into the atmosphere. It is actually weird, though. The EU has a taxonomy of different energy sources and how green they are. And they decided that natural gas should be counted as a clean energy, a non greenhouse emitting gas, which is not, but they couldn't get around that, it would have been too difficult if they had sort of banned natural gas. So it's a pretty clean burning stuff. There's no, not much sulfur in it and other things in it. So it's a fairly clean burning gas, but it does produce CO2. That's the side product of burning. Methane is that that's all you get in the atmosphere. So the taxonomy is a bit weird in Europe. I think it lacks some common sense and it's somewhat at odds with its stated goals in terms of reducing greenhouse gases, but they've had to confront reality and say this is the way it's going to be.
1: You know, I'm really surprised because France has been a leader in nuclear energy. I think they get about 75% of their electricity from
6: nuclear power. You would think that the other countries in Europe would learn from France. Well, I think the French example goes back a very, very long time, almost sort of into the 1950s and 60s, where there's a very deliberate policy in France to say, we're going to do everything nuclear, and we're going to move in that direction. I think there was a sense back then that nuclear power would be so cheap that electricity companies and utilities wouldn't even put sort of counters into houses to count how much electricity you were using because it would be so cheap to, to use. Now, it didn't quite work out that way. It still costs money to pump this electricity around the country. You still have to have the power plants. You have to, have to buy the nuclear fuel. You have to get rid of it. So there is a real expense there. But the French really went all in on nuclear power in the 1960s and 70s and really built out their nuclear sector. And that remains to this day. Now, In hindsight, yes, you could say that was the right thing to do. And it's given them a much, much cheaper source of power than you might say with these very volatile markets in oil and in natural gas and in other kinds of energy sources. So in hindsight, yes, it was the right thing to do. But of course, it takes you a very long time to get there. It didn't happen overnight in France. It's a question of decades of investment and a a quite deliberate industrial policy favoring nuclear energy for a very long time. That's a very hard thing to replicate just on the spur of the moment when you say gas prices this year are too high. Let's build five nuclear power plants. It just can't be done. It takes years to build them, it takes years to finance them, it gets years to get the permission, all those things done. It's many years before you get a new power plant online. Well,
1: it seems like they still don't get it. The EU is coming out with a policy, they're gonna recommend a 33% tax on oil companies to be redistributed to voters. Octavia, all that does is support a price. It doesn't lower the price of energy because you're not creating any more demand. And I can't imagine an oil company already being taxed, paying another tax of 33%, they're going to be incentivized to go out and find it. In fact, I just a recent report that came out this weekend talking about how energy and exploration by the major companies is falling off a cliff because there's no incentive to do so. So how is that going to solve the problem in Europe, number one? And number two, there's more people that die from cold weather than warm weather. What happens if this is a severe cold winter and all of a sudden people start dying because they're freezing?
6: Well, instead of dying because they're freezing. I think we're told that in Germany and much of the rest of Europe, there's enough natural gas stored up to make it through the winter. So knock on wood, we'll make it or the Germans will make it through the winter and won't die of freezing. But you're absolutely right. More people die certainly in the northern climates of freezing than they do of heat. So what are we going to do? I mean, 33% tax on the oil companies and energy companies, of course, is not going to incentivize them to produce more cheap fuel. It does quite the opposite. Now, I remember my elementary introductory economics classes where if you tax a company, they're going to pass some of that tax increase onto the consumer. They have to. In the best case, they just eat that tax themselves, but they're not going to do that. They're going to pass at least some of that 33% onto the consumer. So the consumer is going to see higher gas prices. There's no way around that. But I do think though, this is not just the Europeans talking this way. I think our friend in California, Gavin Newsom, is saying very, very similar things indeed and saying we should tax the oil companies because they're charging too much in California. Like that's going to bring prices down. I think they've sort of taken leave of their senses. I think they have to decide what do they want to achieve? Do they want to achieve lower oil prices and lower gas prices, or do they want to achieve? Get weeding us off oil and gas entirely. It seems to me that they're saying the former, but doing the latter. And that means they're sort of talking to themselves. But they're saying, I'm trying to help you get the prices down. But in reality, I'm driving the prices up.
1: Yeah, because we're following along the same footsteps. In fact, Newsom wants to tax the oil companies, but the president of Valero just took him to task for you know all the regulations, shutting down refineries in California is one of the few states in the country that has its own unique blend of gasoline. So if there is a shortage, we can't get gasoline from Texas or elsewhere in the country because no refiner is going to make a special blend just for California.
6: I suppose they will if the price goes high enough and it's worth it. I don't know exactly what's involved in making the special blend in California, what kind of ingredients you have to put in or what you have to take out and how difficult that is. But it does seem it has driven up gas prices much, much higher in California than in the rest of the country. And that's not something that Gavin Newsom is going to be able to address by higher taxes. It's just laughable, actually, to think that that is going to fix the problem. He's going to say, these oil companies are taking advantage of us Californians by charging us higher prices, which is our own fault because we've got these special regulations here. But on top of that, now we're going to increase taxes on them and hope that increasing taxes on those oil companies, they're going to reduce the prices. But it just doesn't work that way. It just can't you can't defy the laws of physics, even if you're Gavin Newsom. but it just it's just not possible to do. It. That's of course going to lead to higher prices, which I suspect is what his goal is. He's not saying it, but I suspect his goal is is to basically make gasoline out of the reach of the of a large portion of the population to stop them from driving and reduce uh, pollution now that might be a very admirable goal, and maybe that is the right thing, but it is basically being I think slightly disingenuous by saying one thing that I want to reduce the prices. And in, in fact, implementing policies that do exactly the opposite. The only problem,
1: if you want to move the country, and I think it's 2035, you're not going to be able to get a gas combustion engine in car in California. The problem is our grid and our power structure as you know, we shut down one nuclear power plant. He is postponing the other one to 2030, but they just passed some laws that will require our utilities to shut down their coal and nat gas plants by 2030 to meet carbon emissions. In the last power out that we had with the heat wave, Octavio, we were told if you had an EV, don't charge it from three to eight o'clock. So how's that going to work when we go to 60%,
6: 70% EVs? Listen, I, I don't know how that's going to work. I think the question answers itself, it's not going to work terribly well. There's not really that much capacity to charge all these cars simultaneously. And it's I suppose it's one thing to do it in California, where you guys have pretty nice weather and things work quite well. If you're trying to do that on a nationwide basis in the US, of course, there's a lot of very cold climates where electric vehicles do not work particularly well, and the battery life becomes enormously reduced and the range of the vehicles goes down. So that's going to be a struggle as well. But you, know, you point out that Gavin Newsom's put into these rules that go into effect in 2030 and 2035, to a certain extent, that is, I think, just sort of grandstanding in a way, because Gavin Newsom does not have the power and the ability to bind somehow subsequent governors and legislatures in California to his will. There's no way he can write a law now that takes effect in 2035, where if the government in 2035 doesn't agree with it, is going to go through with it. So it's kind of meaningless posturing. It's basically Gavin Newsom standing on a grandstand saying, I'm doing something about this. We're going to ban all sorts of things by the year 2035. But in reality, it's kind of a cheap shot because he doesn't have to do anything about it. He's going to rely on someone else in the future to take care of it and take some of the credit now. I don't think it's particularly persuasive. It's kind of almost a cowardly way of approaching things. He's not willing to do something himself. He just wants to postpone it and have someone else have to do it.
1: Well, it's amazing because whether it's here, you know, California and LA, they're registering gasoline prices of $8 or more So once again, his objective to get prices up and maybe people don't drive, maybe they take a bus or whatever they're going to do. But, you know, in California, we love our cars. We love driving. And for many Californians, it's not just that. It's a housing crisis. We don't have enough homes, rents are sky high. So you have Octavio people that will live far and away from where they work because they can't afford to buy homes in the city. It's just too expensive. So they need that gasoline to get to work.
6: Yeah. I, listen, I know all about living in California. We spent a lot of time there. I will just say that I'm living in a city now, I think in Vienna and Austria, where I, I think almost no one commutes more than 20 minutes and typically do that with public transport. But you commuting more than 20 minutes, I think most people consider here that something to be wrong with your life to have organized it that way. But you're absolutely right. The alternatives in California don't really exist. There is not a very dense public transportation network, and most people would like to avoid it anyway, being on public transportation, because it's kind of an unpleasant experience.
1: Yeah, that's the thing I've heard about Europe. There's more public transportation. You have trains that will take you all throughout Europe, the Orient Express. We don't have that. We used to have trains. I can remember as a little kid going back east on a train. That doesn't
6: exist today. No, it'd be very tough to get on a train to go back east. It would take a few days, and it would be, oh, you you could do it. It'd be quite expensive. though. You're so much cheaper flying. So it's an alternative that really has died away. But yeah, so if Gavin Newsom or other California politicians are going to make driving very or too expensive or unbearable, they're going to have to come up with some alternatives. And I think so far, the alternatives are, are somewhat lacking. But that's a reflection of the fact that it's a difficult geographic place to really create a very dense public transportation network the way you can in in highly centralized cities. You can do it in a New York or in a Boston or Philadelphia or even a Chicago. It's very hard to do it in Los Angeles. It doesn't lend itself well to that, just too spread out, it's too thinly populated. It's a very different challenge that you have there. And to wean people off their cars, I don't think people in Los Angeles or in Southern California spend a lot of time in the cars because they like it. I think they basically see it's a necessity. And I think Gavin Newsom wants to price that necessity through the roof. And that's going to be very, very unpopular, I think.
1: Now, how do you see this playing out in Europe? Do you see them eventually because of sky-high prices eventually changing course? Or do you think they're going to be bullheaded? It's like, for example, the EU coming out and saying, we're going to tax the heck out of oil companies, which you and I know is not going to produce cheaper energy.
6: Well, I think The politicians are going to start to see this as being an enormous liability for them that they're not able to deliver cheap energy prices. And there's different camps, of course, within Europe. It's not one homo- homogeneous population. So you have sort of the very fervent green environmentalists who are very happy to see fuel prices going through the roof. They think this is a positively good thing. So the more expensive gasoline becomes, the better. The more expensive heating oil comes, the better, because that's going to save the planet. And there are a lot of those kind of people thinking out there who are I would sort of call climate fanatics, for want of a better word. I think there's a much broader base of the population that is not as fanatical and therefore not as politically engaged about the issue, but does not want to be paying these kinds of prices for energy. So they're going to start to go into the streets once they realize that their lives have become unlivable because the energy prices are too high. And if you're going to have to suffer through a cold, freezing winter in northern Germany, it's going to be a very unpleasant experience. And you might be tempted to put some pressure on your politicians and to change that and fix that. And so I think this movement of Environmental energy policies is basically going to have a rather forceful meeting with reality sometime later this winter in Europe, in Germany in particular. And we're going to see some unpleasant consequences from it. I just hope that the natural gas does hold through the winter, the way they've been basically saying the stores are enough to do that. Because if you don't, a lot of people rely on natural gas for heating their homes in Germany. If they're not able to do that because the gas is gone, they're going to be furious. They're going to be very, very angry and they're going to be looking for someone to blame. They might not ultimately blame the right people for the right reasons, but they're going to be mad and they're going to demand some sort of changes.
1: A final question, central banks globally have been raising interest rates. Our Fed is still persistent on raising them to counteract inflation. But one thing that central bankers in Europe and the US can't do, they can't create cubic feet of natural gas and they can't create barrels of oil. So when you take a look at oil inventories, I mean, one of the reasons we've had somewhat lower prices here, is we're draining our SPR. We just announced today the administration is going to release another 15 million barrels. So he's taken our security levels down to levels we haven't seen since 1983 and 84. So what do central bankers do if inflation is persistent caused by energy?
6: Well, I think central bankers can only really control sort of the only thing they can control is the money supply and the amount of money in circulation. And they have different levers which which they can control that, interest rates and certain kinds of operations. But ultimately, that's their remit, right, is money and money supply. So there's not much a central bank can do about inflation in a specific sector they can try and address overall inflation or overall price levels going up, but not really one in one specific sector, unless they've caused it somehow. And they sometimes do this. They will go out and they will create money. For example, the Fed did this in the pandemic, basically, in early 2020, the Fed printed you know, close to $3 trillion and went out and bought mortgage-backed securities with that. And that money flows right into the housing sector. So the Fed was basically printing money and pumping it into the housing sector, so propping up the housing sector, making housing prices go up. So that kind of inflation, they can, of course, stop. Once they stop doing that, that's going to cool down a lot. And if they start to sell that stuff, then, of course, it goes way down. So if the Fed has, or if the central bank has created that inflation through certain injections into the economy by money printing, yes, they can undo that. But energy going up, not much they can do about it. You point out quite rightly that they can't produce a cubic foot of gas or they can't produce a barrel of oil through monetary policy. They can't do any of those things. They also weren't able to cure a single case of COVID. I checked the clinical literature. I couldn't find any case of COVID being cured by lower interest rates. It just never happened. So there's certain things that they can't do with monetary policy that maybe they don't quite realize they can't do. They think it's sort of the be-all and end-all and cure-all for any human ill is lower interest rates and more money. So I don't think they can really do much specifically about energy prices. But bear in mind, prices overall are going up an awful lot. It's not just energy. It's food prices. It's rental prices. It's all sorts of commodity prices going up. at least end consumer sees. Now, in the commodities markets now, we've seen some attenuation of that and some slowing down, but that hasn't hit the end consumer yet. So it's a long way from the price of corn on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange took cornflakes on your table, and those prices can move in opposite directions for quite some time, and I think they will. So I think the end products that the consumer pays for are going to carry on going up in price, and some of the commodities prices are more sensitive to the central bank's increasing interest rates and start to come down first. So I guess to some extent, that's encouraging that the central banks are, are doing that and trying to push down those prices. It's just going to take a long time to filter through the system till it gets to the end consumer and gets reflected then in CPI numbers.
1: The final question, if I may, last time I think we talked to you were somewhat bearish.
6: What's your feeling about the markets now globally and let's say in the US? I think it's pretty much the same story. And the story is that we still got very high inflation. It took us a decade or more of very, very low interest rates and a lot of money printing to get there. And it's going to take us some time to get out. And while the central banks are pushing down the money supply or increasing interest rates, that's going to have a very negative impact on markets. It's going to have a negative input on equities, on bonds, on all asset classes, including things like real estate and housing and gold and commodities. Basically, anything you can think of has benefited from this enormous wall of liquidity that central banks have created. Now that they're draining it out, well, all those asset classes of benefit are going to suffer. So I'm still looking at cash. And I think we first spoke about this way back in April, where I said, well, the Fed is going to have to carry on tightening the money supply and it's going to basically push the markets further down. And that's precisely what happened in those intervening months since April. How many months has that been? It's been about six months, so half a year. So I think we're in for more of the same. I don't see that basically changing that calculus. Inflation is not being tamed. It's not going away anytime soon. There's all sorts of indications that it might even accelerate. You've pointed out gasoline prices in various parts of the country going up. Rents are going up. And the way the central bank and the Bureau of Labor Statistics measures rent, there's a big lag in there. They don't look at what people are currently asking for rent, sort of current asking prices. They look at what people are actually paying currently. And that's, of course, spread out over a year because you have one year leases typically. And so there's a delay before increases in prices actually filter into those contracts. So that will carry on filtering into the CPI, driving it up. And rent is a very, very big component of the CPI. So we're going to see upward price pressure there on the CPI for some time to come. Which means the Fed is going to have to carry on raising rates and until they get this thing under control. I just hope that the Biden administration doesn't do something insanely stupid like introduce price controls and really mess up the economy badly by doing that, because that would be just awful. If they were now to say, you know, we're going to cap the price of gasoline at two dollars fifty a gallon, well, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be enormous shortages and huge queues and lines waiting to get gas. I just hope they don't do that, but I wouldn't put it past them. I think they might be tempted to do that and say that's going to win us votes in the midterms. We need to do something like that to show that we're very, very serious about inflation.
1: All right. Well, listen, to Octavio, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the
6: things that you do, how could they do so? Best place is to reach us on our website. That's Opimas. That's dot right. Octavio, thanks so much for joining us and
1: please stay warm this winter. Thank you very much, Jim. Take care. Well, Jim, as we usually talk about on Financial
4: Sense News Hour, we put a huge emphasis on the leading economic indicators and how to manage money in this environment. And just this week, the conference board released their U.S. leading economic index, and they have now raised the probability of a recession to
1: very high levels, saying a recession is increasingly likely before year end. You know, Chris, we have a saying on the show is the Fed will keep raising rates till they start breaking things. And what we're starting to see is they're starting to break things. And you can see this reflected probably in Europe and emerging markets. What is really something that we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to is when interest rates were down to zero, and we'll get to this in just a moment, there were a lot of emerging market countries that were borrowing in dollars because the interest rates were lower. It was in a a currency that wasn't particularly strong at that time. And so there is $350 billion of emerging debt that needs to be rolled over by 2024. And according to Bloomberg, 15 of those 23 emerging market currencies are down more than 10%. So imagine if you're an emerging market country, you borrowed in dollars, and now the interest rates, which were variable when you were borrowing, I mean, you think about where we were at the beginning of the year. It's hard to believe that 10-year Treasury notes were less than a half a percent. And today, they're on their way to four and a half percent. So imagine if you're an emerging market country and you've seen interest rates go from half a percent to almost four and a half percent. Then, to make matters worse, your currency is down anywhere from 10 to 20 percent. It's not just emerging market currencies that have lost a lot of ground. So the the problem that the Fed has is just as they were too loose for far too long, now they're just headstrong and they're like a bull in a china shop. It's like three quarters of a point, three quarters of a point. And we all know that there is a lag period of six to nine months from the time they raise interest rates till the time it works its way through the economy. So they have no idea the damage that they're inflicting. I mean, you can see it reflected overseas. In Europe, uh, we've seen it in currencies, like the Japanese yen has lost over 20%. The pound almost got, the British pound almost got to parity with the dollar. The euro actually went below parity with the dollar. So it's not just emerging market currencies that are taking the hit. But it's also developed countries in Europe, Britain, Japan, whether it's the Chinese. And we're going to talk about the implication of this and what it's meaning and what it's doing to the treasury market. There are many that are starting to say that the Fed has maybe lost control. So this is a a very, very risky period. And the problem is, picture you're driving on the freeway and all of a sudden a storm comes up. And these guys are going at, you know, 90 miles an hour and they're not slowing down and there's a greater chance there's going to be an accident. And that's why, you know, 95 percent of the time when the Fed does this, it ends up in a recession. And Chris, we have two of the variables that we always see preceding every recession, a spike in oil prices, which we've seen, and then Fed raising rates. So both are at play. And so it's not surprising that we've seen probabilities, whether it's the World Bank, the IMF, whether it's uh, business leaders, everybody from Elon Musk, Jamie Dimon, to Jeff Bezos, who gave a tweet yesterday he said, it's time to batten down the hatches. And the seriousness of that is, you know, he's Amazon, one of the fastest growing online retailers. And if he's saying that, we should pay some attention.
4: Yeah. And so, you know, late last year, we started warning our listeners that it's time to get defensive because we were seeing the LEI starting to roll over. They were peaking at the time. And in addition to that, we had seen a cluster of pretty longer term technical sell signals that were issued across the major U.S. indices. So we began raising cash, getting more defensive at the market peak and have been doing so for most of this year with a higher exposure to natural resources, given the massive amount of inflation that we are seeing coming down the pike. But at this point, you know, as you said, the Fed is not stopping to see what the lagged effects are from their monetary tightening. And we're not even at the point of them pivoting or pausing yet. So another 75 basis point hike expected in their November meeting. There is some speculation that they may drop down to 50 basis points if we start to see the breaking point emerge uh, in the months ahead. But at this point, you know, the longer term
1: measures are still pointing downwards. Yeah, I mean, if you just took a look at the conference boards, LEIs were down four-tenths of a percent in October. The Philly Fed uh, was down 8.7% last month. Uh, the ISM manufacturing's down to 50.9. When you go below 50, it's a contracting economy. And some of the other things that we're starting to see and one to pay attention to is the Goldman Sachs Financial Stress Index keeps climbing and it's already close to the peak that we saw in March of 2020 when we saw a big swoon in the stock market and also in the economy it was a short lived recession because we counteract the the shutdowns with massive stimulus but still the stress index keeps climbing and you know i can't help but believe that they're going to make a mistake again uh, just as they were far too loose for far too long. Now they're getting too aggressive. And just to put this in perspective, I have not seen anything this aggressive since 1994. In 1994, the Fed doubled the Fed funds rate from 3 to 6%. Now, folks, we began January of this year at zero. We're at three and a quarter right now, and we're expecting another 75 basis points in November. That'll take us up to four. And then in December, it's projected they're going to go 50 basis points. So we could be at four and a half at the end of the year, which is their target, which is probably one of the most aggressive rate raising cycles that I've seen in my entire career. And what makes this one different, uh, they're, they're drawing some parallels from Powell to, let's say, Paul Volcker. But when Volcker was doing this, the debt to GDP ratio was 30%. Today, it's 130%. And we're going to get into debt and money supply and some of the other issues. So this is all the makings of another perfect storm here. So we're going to watch this. We're going to pay a lot of attention to this. But watch for the credit markets to start breaking down and freezing up. They did this in 2019. And they did it between 2008 and 2009. And everybody remembers what happened back then. So the probabilities right now of a recession are probably 100%. And I guess the real question right now is just how bad of a recession will be. Some are saying, well, this will be a light recession. I'm not so sure. Jim, let's talk about how the Fed is losing the inflation war. As you mentioned, you know, the Fed was
4: obviously on the wrong side when they kept saying that inflation was transitory. Uh, as early as 2020, in the first half of 2020, you had made a big call that we were going to see a tsunami or a big wave of inflation hit just from the one-two punch of both stimulating demand and restricting supplies from the COVID lockdowns. We saw that, and that has continued to persist with widespread global supply disruptions and continued spending. There's a, a large number of secular forces that we've pointed to That are really projecting that inflation will be with us for the remainder of this decade at higher than average levels that we saw in prior years, Uh, deglobalization also being part of that. We've done a number of different shows on this explaining our persistent view on inflation. But if you wouldn't mind, cover some of the reasons why you see the Fed
1: losing the inflation war. Well, number one, let's talk about. I mentioned two things here associated with the preceding recession Fed rate hikes in spiking oil prices, which is what we have now. The problem is, Chris, the Fed cannot create barrels of oil or natural gas. And we're learning that OPEC capacity is limited. They're not even meeting their daily production goals. In fact, Garwar, which was the largest oil field in the world, it was discovered about 70, 80 years ago, their production has gone from 5.5 million barrels a day down to 3.3. So, Saudi Arabia alone is not able to do what we've always believed. I mean, they've always said we can produce 12 to 13 million barrels. I doubt it. I don't believe it. And there's a growing consensus now that OPEC has limited spare capacity. And we saw and we made comment that when Biden went over to the G7 uh this past summer, Macron said, look, the, the best that they're going to be able to do is increase production by 150,000, 150 thousand, one of the big news in the last couple of weeks they're cutting production by two million barrels a day but that really isn't necessarily as true because they're falling short of production by 3.6 million barrels a day. So so that's number one. number two, federal spending right now by the Biden administration is highly inflationary. in fact the CBO uh, you know as I mentioned, We added $7 trillion of debt since 2019. And right now, our total government debt is $31,250,000. Or if you're a U.S. citizen, every U.S. citizen in the United States owes $94,000. More importantly, is the Fed has been criticizing for pumping the money supply, Chris, if you look at M2, it's at $21.7 trillion. It's up. 45% 45% in the last two years, we've created more increases in the money supply than we have over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And that all came in just a couple of years. The other thing is uh, the CBO just announced uh, the Biden $6 trillion budget is going to add another $15 trillion to new debt by the end of this decade. So we're at $31 trillion now. We could be at 45 trillion by the end of the decade. And here's the thing that's going to hit. Just as I mentioned, we've gone from a zero uh, Fed funds rate at the beginning of the year, and it looks like we're heading to four and a half by the end of the year. Now, what does this mean for the government? You've got almost 30 to 40% of the government's debt that's going to be rolled over in the next 12 months where the government in the past was paying, let's say, one-tenth of 1% for a treasury bill, a one-year treasury bill. Right now, they're paying 4.6%. So that alone, next year, you could see the government spend $1 trillion on interest, Chris, and that's equal to 25% of gross tax revenues. So we're headed for trouble here. And it's not just that fiscal policy is highly inflationary. Barron's just did a story on there's 20 states that are adopting fiscal stimulus, our own state of California being one of them. They call it uh, gas relief. Newsom is basically going to send out checks a week before the election, uh, a couple hundred bucks to pay for gas. Well, the problem is we are not doing anything to increase production. So, you know, all you're doing is subsidizing consumption, which is not going to bring the cost of oil down. And the other thing is, I don't care if you're looking at oil, oil inventories are well below their five-year average. The SPR, Biden just announced he's releasing another 15 million barrels. We're going to be down to levels we haven't seen in the SPR. Uh, You'd have to go back to 1983 and 1984. So they're getting dangerously low. And of course, he's going to stop doing that after the elections. But then he's also saying he's going to go back and buy. I I, you know, if he was to go back and buy, he's just going to put more pressure on a very, very tight labor market. And what we're seeing that is also going to be inflationary, Chris, is commodity shortages. I don't care if you're looking at zinc, aluminum, copper to oil uh, all across the board. And that's one of the reasons why we were as bullish as we are on the commodity complex is because there's shortages in this bull market as I have talked and written about, is going to be driven more about supply where the last bull market in the OO decade was more about demand, especially from China, India, and the developing world. This time around, it's all about supply. And unfortunately, policy is doing everything it can to restrict supply due to green and ESG policies. So again, as we've
4: been saying since late last year and into this year, you know, given the rollover, the LEIs, and a lot of the things that we were looking at on a technical basis with some of the long-term sell signals that were issued on the U.S. stock market, we were arguing for a defensive, cautious posture on the stock market. That's what we were doing at our firm, raising cash into the bear market that commenced this year, also arguing that you want to hedge the forces of higher inflation with an exposure to commodities. That's been our position for all of 22 Now at this point, you know, we're seeing a little bit of a technical rally here, a short-term, perhaps year-end rally. We were speaking with Ms. Schneider earlier in the show, how she said, you know, on a seasonal basis, you tend to see rallies into midterm elections. Perhaps there's some positive sentiment associated with that, thinking that the Republicans may turn against some of the anti-fossil fuel policies and alleviate the supply concerns that we see with lack of production, the refinery problems that we see currently. But again, these are longer-term problems that will need to be fixed. However, that being said, it does seem as if there is more positive sentiment moving towards what could potentially be a pause here. And I know we've been talking about that for a while, but as you said, 75 basis point hike expected next meeting at the December meeting. Odds have now lowered from 75 basis points to 50 basis points. I don't think that's quite enough. To say that we could see a sustainable bottom in the market, but what are you seeing in terms of Fed's policy here and how this could translate to the market outlook moving forward?
1: You know, we're more likely to see uh, a year-end rally, but Chris, I think where it's really going to hit home again, we're expecting another downturn at the beginning of the year because corporations are going to be reporting earnings. We're going to start hearing news about uh, we're in a recession. And so I think that's going to be a negative development. So, you know, the big question that the markets have been asking is when will the Fed pivot or pause? I think the difference between those two, a a pause is more likely unless they really uh, damage the financial system. And one of the things that uh, you saw a turnaround in Fed policy, if you look at Volcker in 1981 in August of that year, he pivoted and began slashing interest rates. And the reason is a lot of Latin American debt was about due to default for the very same reasons that you're seeing now, rising interest rates and declining currencies with the strong dollar. So happened again in 1994. They doubled the Fed funds rate from three to six. And we ended up with an emerging market crisis that forced Greenspan to reverse course in the following year and then we saw it again in 2019 when the bond market got locked up. So and you know, you go back to uh, what they were doing leading up to the financial crisis, they kept just raising. They weren't as aggressive, in other words, they were doing it a quarter of a point per, per uh, Fed meeting, but they kept they started in 2004 and they kept doing it for 3 or 4 years until finally they just broke the entire financial system. And so that's something that they are at risk to do. And remember, debt levels are three, four, five times greater today than where they were back in 2008. So one thing that we watch very closely is the Goldman Sachs Financial Stress Index, and it's starting to climb. I mean, if you look at it on on a chart, it looks like a NASA space launch. And so, you know, I did see this week there were two Fed governors that sort of came out and said, well, maybe we should slow it down a bit. Hey, no kidding. Uh, you know, I use the analogy that you go in, uh, you, you're going in to see a doctor, and you, I don't know, you have cholesterol, you have blood pressure issues, and the doctor gives you a pill. What he's usually going to do is, hey, let's see you back in a month. Let's see how it's working. What the Fed is not doing is they're just held pedal to the metal bull in a china shop they keep raising 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 it's like uh, we're tough we're going to we're going to lick inflation they can't simply they can't this is a supply fiscal driven inflationary environment and while the fed is trying to slow things down by raising interest rates the government is pouring gasoline on the fire with massive spending programs biden is Increased spending by $4.5 that's before student loans. You have state governors that are increasing fiscal uh, spending. So all of this, Chris, is running counter to what the Fed's trying to do. And that's why they're, you're, you're starting to see some Fed governors now coming out and saying, maybe we should start slowing things down. No
4: kidding. Yeah, when it comes to the headline inflation, we are starting to see that Probably in the process of peaking, and you can look at the true inflation Index for that, which is a real-time measure of the inflation outlook. It looks at all the major components that are driving the inflationary trend. That's starting to roll over. It's now below 8% in the high 7s and uh, is showing that headline- Is coming down. However, the Fed looks at the core components, excluding the more volatile food and energy. That's the more uh, primary trend of inflation, the sticky parts of inflation. That's trending higher. So at this point, unless we see a significant break, likely in the economy and the markets, as we've been discussing today. Uh, the Fed is unlikely to pull back on the second fastest rate of tightening that we're seeing in history at this point. So that's kind of what we're shaping up to here. Uh, Boil this down for us, Jim. What do you see as the end game at this point now?
1: You know, what they're going to do is they're creating right now a global currency crisis from emerging markets to develop. As I mentioned, you know the japanese yen's down about 25% this year the euro's down about 20% the british pound is down about 20% so imagine if you're a foreign country and you're having to pay for oil in dollars so your currency is down 20% while the price of energy is up 20 and 30% imagine what that's doing to your budget what it's doing to your energy costs and your inflation The dollar hit a 20-year high this year, and what it's starting to do is impacting the long-term treasury market because what it's doing, it's forcing foreigners to sell off their treasuries to defend their currency. Japan's doing it. uh, The Europeans are doing it. uh, the, The Brits may have to do it, and emerging markets are doing it. So that's one of the reasons why we've seen treasury yields climb to levels we have not seen and chris would you probably have to go back to the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 so uh energy has been racked as we mentioned by green and esg policies and also declining production and what this means is you know you you look at the bond market almost every single day we're seeing long term treasuries climb and chris this is the opposite of what you should be seeing right now. The yield curve is inverted. But as you approach a recession, you have short-term rates rising because the Fed is raising them. But the long-term rates are usually falling in anticipation of a recession. That's not happening. And the main reason, foreigners are dumping their treasuries to defend their currencies. Emerging market, uh, central banks have sold over 3 billion in treasuries. Japan, is intervening in the currency market for the first time since 1998. And another aspect of this is with the Ukrainian war, the U.S. government seized Russian assets in the United States. So what you're also seeing develop is the end of the petrodollar. So what you're seeing are countries like China, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia are trading oil outside the dollar And as CBs dump treasuries, the Fed is also rolling off its treasuries. In other words, they're not going to be rolling uh, those bonds over. At the same time, you've got the treasury itself issuing more bonds because our deficits are exploding. We're going to go to multi-trillion dollar deficits, probably starting next year uh, because of interest. As I mentioned, you could see the government paying almost 25% of its revenues are close to one trillion dollars in interest rate costs. So, the thing that the Fed is doing by raising interest rates, making interest rates higher here than elsewhere in the world, it's elevating the dollar, which is hurting foreign currencies, and also it's causing higher interest rates for those that are borrowed in do- a dollar-denominated debt. So they're 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 pushing us towards a financial crisis, and the problem is, Chris. When you have major players like China, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, maybe possibly India, moving out of the dollar for trading for oil, that's the end of the petrodollar. And so uh, the more the Fed does this and the more that they use monetary policy to punish uh, or issue sanctions, like whether it's China or Russia, the more you're going to move those countries Out of the dollar, you've got Russia and China accumulating large amounts of gold and talking about a gold-backed currency. So, you know, the dollar is going to have a lot of competition. But at the same time, you've got the Treasury needing to finance, issue massive amounts of debt, and the buyers of that debt are receding. Foreign central banks are selling. The Fed is rolling off its debt. And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing long-term interest rates climb instead of decline. I still think they're going to decline as we head into a recession because the Fed is going to be forced to pause or uh, pivot. If they pivot, it'll be because the damage is so great that they're going to try to offset that. At least if rates do get up to 4.5%. At least they'll have some ammunition, but they've got to be real careful. Just like the pandemic and the shutdown, we lost a lot of refinery capacity in the United States. That's not coming back. It's one of the reasons that, you know, you've got $8 gas prices in California besides ESG policies. But it's going to be a tough situation. If you just look at the amount of debt, I mean, I just looked at, Chris, since we just looked at getting some stats to put together this uh, monologue today. Uh, treasury debt has increased by another hundred billion dollars, so we're almost at uh, thirty-one and a quarter trillion in debt right now. You're seeing large currency depreciation in the major currencies: the yen, the euro, the pound. Uh, you're also seeing it in the Chinese yuan, and I think, Chris, when the Fed either pauses or goes on or pivots. It's the dollar will be the next one that'll get hit, especially with its precipitous rise that we've seen this year, as a result of probably one of the most aggressive Fed rate hikes we've seen since nineteen ninety four. But when the fertilizer hits the fan, uh, the Fed will be forced to buy everything, which could bring a collapse of the dollar because there's just no more players. Uh, you you take a look at Japan is selling, China is selling, Europe is selling, emerging markets are selling. All these major central banks are dumping treasuries to defend their currency. At the same time, we are elevating fiscal spending, which, and and with an increase in interest rates, the government deficit next year could be several trillion dollars, as the CBO said. Uh, The budget, the Biden budget, will add 15 trillion to uh, the government's debt by the end of this decade. So, Chris, in less than eight years, we could be looking at a $45 trillion government debt on its balance sheet. This is uh, getting very precarious, and they've really got to watch this. So, I think in the end, this is going to bring, as I mentioned, it's going to be an inflationary decade that is going to end up with a dollar devaluation. And because of this inflation, unfortunately, it's going to widen the wealth gap. It's going to hurt the middle class, the poor and especially retirees that are on fixed income. I mean, what do you do? I mean, I guess if there's any good news is social security checks are gonna go up by 8.7% beginning in January. So there's a little bit of good news for retirees, but for most retirees on fixed income or middle-class or poor that don't have the means to save, they're gonna get hit hard. And that's, that's gonna be a tough one. You're gonna see, I mean, just look at food costs. Uh, I've never seen food prices rise. You would probably have to go back to the 70s when we had food cost and inflation rising at these levels. So, Jim, investment implications. Again,
4: we've been talking about ever since early 2020, long-term increase in inflation, the need to hedge against this by exposure to natural resources, uh, also maintaining a more defensive U.S.-centric posture since the U.S. is somewhat buffeted by a number of some of the problems that we see overseas with the war and other issues, of course. So boil this down for us. What are the investment implications and how are we positioned here at Financial Sense Wealth Management?
1: Well, Chris, the the portfolio that I manage, we're 30% in commodities right now. So hard assets. uh, And if you were getting into real estate, I prefer individual real estate to REITs because if you look at the REIT index, it's been in decline I just went through a course on hedging for inflation in high inflationary times and it was interesting on the statistics REITs don't do as well during that period of time versus individual real estate. I love precious metals were long gold and silver, I were long base metals and other commodities. I still like high dividend paying stocks and especially if you're a retiree, how are you going to survive inflation in this decade unless you have something It's going to be going up each year uh, with dividends uh, going up. So, you know, if you're on a fixed level of income, hopefully you have the capacity to get something in your portfolio that's going up, raising that income, which is why I love blue chip dividend stocks. And uh, right now, Chris, uh, we just bought our first one year treasury bill and we're getting 4.6%. We will be laddering treasuries as the Fed continues to drive interest rates up. And hopefully, as they start seeing these statistics, I think this will probably be one of the worst Christmases on record. You're seeing even companies like Apple cancel six million iPhones. The iPhone sales are not going well. I'm seeing other retailers issue warnings. So I would be short-term treasuries, high dividend paying stocks, hard assets, and commodities, because that's the only way you're going to get through this decade.
4: Well, as we close out today's show, please remember to spread the word about Financial Sense News Hour with your friends and family. As always, today's podcast is brought to you by Financial Sense Wealth Management, which has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. If you have any questions about our asset management or our financial planning services, feel free to click where it says Contact Us on FinancialSense.com, or you can also call us directly at 888 486 Three nine three nine.
1: In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to the Financial Sense News Hour. Until we talk again, we hope you have a pleasant weekend.